Welcome to my podcast, Explain It To Me, where I talk to very intelligent people and get them to explain things to me in the simplest way possible. On this episode, we talk about supersonic and hypersonic jets, and whether or not you could cook a turkey by throwing it really, really fast. I'm Christopher Strand. I have the same name, last name as the interviewee, or interviewer, meaning I'm his brother. What are we talking about today? All right, today, yeah, we're talking about supersonics and hypersonics. Cool. So basically, flight at speeds faster than the speed of sound. So, how fast is supersonic? Well, I guess a place to start is really what defines the speed of sound, maybe more so than jumping into supersonic. Supersonic is just going faster than the speed of sound, but it's kind of helpful to know, I think, what speed of sound really means. Okay, what is the speed of sound? (laughs) So basically, sound travels through well, any media, but we're mostly interested in air and what we're talking about today, but it, it travels through the air as compression wave. And so what that means is that there's like a slight rise and drop in pressure that as I'm speaking to somebody, I'm speaking to you well, except without the fact that there's like a Zoom connection between us right now. But if I was speaking to you in person, the way that you hear what I am saying is that I am causing small pressure rises and drops in specific patterns that propagate through the air. And the way that that happens is our air is made up of a bunch of molecules and these molecules bounce into each other and they, they basically crash into another one and that one crashes into the next one. And it just kind of cascades along and that cascading crash into everything creates these pressure waves where the molecules bunch up and then spread out and then bunch up and then spread out. And the uh, speed at which that compression wave can travel through the air is the speed of sound. It's how fast sound travels. And so what it requires is all these little collisions happening along the way to get from me to you. And so in kind of room temperature air that we experience you know, at sea level, that can happen at about 340 meters per second, um, which is for other units that are maybe more useful for people, that's like 1200 kilometers an hour or like 750 miles per hour. These are rough numbers, but something like that. So what is supersonic then? Yeah. So supersonic then is when you are now traveling faster then compression waves can travel through the air. And that's really important because what it means is normally when a plane, let's look, we're going to talk a lot about planes in this, but when a plane is flying through the air at less than supersonic speeds, what happens is, I mean, you can hear a plane coming, right? And that means that that sound is traveling ahead of the plane. And so it is, it is traveling faster than the plane is traveling, so it can get up ahead of it. When you start to go closer and closer to the speed of sound, those sound waves that the engines are giving off and the, the sound of the air hitting the vehicle and that sort of thing, as you get faster and faster and closer to the speed of sound, those sound waves can't get as far ahead anymore. And eventually when you reach the speed of sound, the sound waves can't propagate ahead of you and they start to stack up and you get the stacking up of all these tiny little waves eventually creates something called a shock wave. And so what it means is that normally The air a long ways ahead of an airplane knows that the airplane is coming because these pressure waves are communicating this, what's called a perturbation. They're communicating the fact that there is something there bouncing into molecules some distance away. But when you start going really fast, the air can't communicate to the air molecules up ahead that there is um, this vehicle rushing at it really fast. And as a result, the air can't adjust or move out of the way in any sort of way. There's no information transfer anymore ahead of the vehicle. And this is a very significant change in the uh, dynamics 
for how a vehicle has to fly through the air. Um, it All of a sudden, the way that a vehicle flies through the air changes dramatically and you need to adjust your way of flying. One of the biggest things is that the amount of drag dramatically increases when you reach the speed of sound. Cool. So you say like the sonic boom. So is that just like a one boom? And then like you just hear normal whooshing air sounds or does a sonic boom, is it like a continuous boom wherever the airplane is? Uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty common misconception that that boom happens when you cross the, the sound barrier. It's kind of like the, the term that was used for a long time before people figured out how to actually get past the speed of sound. But uh, the sonic boom actually is the noise that is associated with that stack up of all of those pressure waves into that shock wave. And so that travels with the plane as it flies through the air. And so, you know, in a movie or whatever, when you see, or, or if you're at like an air show or something and you hear a sonic boom, what that is, is the waves that are coming off this, the shock wave that forms around a plane, it forms this cone around the plane. And that cone propagates out behind the plane and gets ever wider. And what you hear is when that cone sweeps past you, as that's when the boom happens, but that cone is traveling with the plane as the entire time as it flies faster than the speed of sound. Supersonic versus hypersonic. Which one is faster? And what are the speeds roughly? So hypersonic is faster than supersonic. Um, supersonic just means that you're going faster than the speed of sound, but there's other effects that start to take place as you get faster and faster. And so for being able to design and operate vehicles, uh, airplanes and rockets and spacecraft and that sort of thing as they re-enter. It's important to sort of define out regions where you need to change the way that the vehicle is designed to operate under that condition. And so hypersonic uh, is one of the, is the next kind of major regime. And that is when you hit roughly Mach 5. So five times the speed of sound or faster than that. And what's kind of relevant there is there's a lot of different definitions of where the hypersonic boundary is. But the thing that becomes important is that, so the easiest way to frame this is probably that when you start going really fast, all of a sudden, the uh, air that starts striking a vehicle starts to get really hot. Um, that collision creates a lot of heat. Um, and when the air passes through the shock wave that is leading the vehicle, when it passes through that shock wave, there's this really strong pressure rise which also leads to a very um, high temperature rise. Basically, all these molecules are slamming into each other as they pass through that shock wave. And what ends up happening when you have really strong shock waves is that you can actually cause chemical reactions to progress. So these molecules slam into each other, but they don't just bounce off and go their separate ways. So you, in air, you've got nitrogen, you've got oxygen. It's kind of like the two major things in the air. And when passing through a relatively weak shock wave and you know, kind of low supersonic regimes, not much happens. It's still oxygen and it's still nitrogen, O2 and N2 molecules. But when you start going really fast, that shockwave starts getting strong enough and hot enough that those molecules break apart and they recombine into different molecules. So you can get things like nitric oxide, which is NO. So one nitrogen atom and one oxygen atom combining together. And so when that happens, all of a sudden the air is no longer normal air. It's different air. It's got a different chemical composition. And what that means is that your engine will run differently. The way that your vehicle's control surfaces interact will operate differently. Also, some of those compounds are quite reactive and ablative, and they will actually erode the material of the vehicle. And so Mach 5 and the hypersonic regime is kind of the regime where you got to start caring about a lot of this stuff. 
all of a sudden, not only do you have to worry about the fact that this air is coming really fast and it's got more drag and, and things like that, but it's also in a regime where there's a lot of heating on your vehicle and you have different, you know, the air is just different. It's fundamentally changed. And so this regime of hypersonics is defined there because all of a sudden you need to start designing your vehicle a little bit differently. So if you threw a turkey fast enough, could you cook it? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess. I suppose so. It probably wouldn't be very evenly cooked. <laughs> I think, yeah. I mean, what you want for a good supersonic or I guess probably a hypersonic turkey cook is you'd, you'd want to go just fast enough that there's a decent amount of heating, um, but not so fast that you start charring away turkey bits because otherwise it's just going to be frozen ball in the middle and uh, you know burnt on the outside. Nobody likes a turkey like that. So hypersonic is anything Mach 5 or yeah. over. Is there... Roughly. It, it roughly. depends upon how you define it, but yeah, it's roughly that. Okay. So how high up Mach can you go? Like in theory, like is Mach 10? Uh, yeah. Fake? I mean, there, I mean, there's no real limit. I mean, this number is just, you know, it's a convenient number to use in like science and, or physics and engineering. People love to make non-dimensional numbers. Um, these are numbers that don't have any units attached to them. We talk about things like speed, which has kilometers per hour and things like that. Mach number doesn't have any units. And it's, it's nice because it's, you're dividing two things that have the same units with each other. But basically what it means is that number can go infinitely high. It's just practically there's certain limits, but the fast, you know, you can certainly get into Mach numbers of 20 or 30. For instance, that happens when spacecraft re-enter the atmosphere. So like the space shuttle re-entering, I think would hit Mach 20 or 25 or something like that during re-entry. And I think Apollo certainly was much higher than that, but I, I don't know what the Apollo numbers were. Um, but in that case, those, the big important di difference there is those things, it's not powered flight. In those cases, you're basically right. falling really, really fast. <laughs> right. So for pilots who are flying supersonic or hypersonic, do they hear any noise from outside of the jet or are they traveling faster than noise? So I guess I, I don't know this for sure in that like, I've never really listened to the inside. I am sure it is extremely loud inside of a jet and that there is a lot of ear protection going on. But that being said, I, to kind of getting distilling down to what your question really is, like, can you hear, because you're going fast, could you hear sound? So let, let's say, for instance, let's take your turkey example. If it was a live turkey and it was squawking away as you hurled this thing really, really fast, you know, could you hear that turkey squawking? If you were traveling at the same speed as it and somehow managed to live, both you and the turkey managed to live, could you hear the turkey squawking or would you be ahead of the, the noise? So... So, okay, first of all, there will be a sonic boom, which is much, much louder than the turkey squawking. But let's would you, say- Would you hear the sonic boom? That depends a little bit. So you, if you, as I said, it's a cone, cone coming off of this object flying through the air. And so it, there's kind of like a surface to that cone that defines where it's really, really loud. And so if you are right on that line, that's, it'd be, that's, you hear the, the sonic boom, that'd be the only thing you hear. But if you're outside that line, you hear nothing from what the vehicle is doing. So if this turkey is squawking and you've got this, this imaginary cone coming off of this, uh, this turkey. <laughs> I like how this has become the de facto uh, standard example now. <laughs> I'll have to use this in other places. <laughs> but if you are outside of that cone, you couldn't hear the turkey. Because, yeah, if you're traveling the same speed as the turkey 
but you were outside of the cone that is swept out by the shockwave. You couldn't hear anything. It would sound as if there is no, you know, it's just quiet air. If you were inside that cone, you could hear it. You'd basically, the sound waves would, now you couldn't be right beside because the cone is basically, you can imagine the tip of the cone becomes very, very small. But if you were like slightly behind the turkey, let's say, but pretty close, you could hear it because yeah, the sound waves would travel to you. But this cone is really the big thing. And it's that cone is where the stacking up of all these sound waves are happening to create a shockwave. So are there supersonic planes or jets out there, like both military and commercially? Yeah, yeah. So if you want to like, you know, we talked about how you get very high Mach numbers when you're like re-entering that sort of thing. So yeah, there's a pretty important def- distinction here of like whether it is powered flight or if it is something that's like falling, re-entering from very high velocities out in space. Let's um, go with powered for now. Yeah, so powered flight, when we're talking about like jets and airplanes and things like that. Yeah, so the, the classic commercial example is the Concorde. Those went up to about Mach 2, something like that. They, I think at the end of the day, it ended up being kind of just financially impractical. Um, I don't really know too much about the history of the Concorde and, and why it was ended, but there certainly has been supersonic commercial jets. And there are some companies that I've heard about that are trying to bring back something similar to that. I think one of the companies is called Sabre in the UK. Like the printer paper company from the office? <laughs> I think that's what it's called. I better check now. Uh, oh, yeah, it's called Sabre. Yeah, it's a company called Reaction Engines. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I, the commercial like supersonics is... is it's a tough thing because the vehicles are very complicated, very expensive to operate. There are military vehicles uh, that are in active operation. You know, most fighter jets can go supersonic. So like the F-35 and like the F-22, which are kind of like the U.S.'s present leading edge uh, super fighter jets, they both go like Mach 1 and a half, Mach 2, something like that. Mach 2 is kind of like around sort of the practical limits of uh, like turbine engines, which is what most jet engines are. How come? Uh, you end up running into all sorts of issues with, I actually don't know this too well, but it has to do with heating on things like turbine blades and stuff like that. You have to kind of start to go to a a different sort of design. And so the one example that is a great example in history of this is the SR-71 Blackbird, which is kind of like the fastest manned aircraft that was not just an experimental aircraft, but was like actually used in service. Um, And this was like a Cold War era high altitude reconnaissance plane. It's a really beautiful looking plane, but it went something like Mach 3 or a little bit past Mach 3. And it would fly at extremely high altitudes to be able to take pictures over top of the USSR. And this, this vehicle had a different style of engine in that it could change from a standard turbine engine to something called a ramjet. And what is a ramjet? One of the things that a aircraft engine needs to do is it needs to take in you know, it needs to take in air, right? It takes in the air from the outside, mixes fuel with it, it burns that, and then it gets really hot. And you exhaust that that hot air out of a nozzle, and that that expansion of that hot air creates thrust, pushing you forward. That's kind of like the basic way. Pretty much all gas turbine engines work. It's a little bit different than like a propeller plane, but that, that's fine. We don't really have to worry about that in the context of supersonics. A ramjet. So one of the things that has has to happen in a gas turbine engine is that the air that's coming in before the fuel gets added to it and it gets burnt, to be able to get a lot of thrust out, you have to compress that air. So the first stage that air, com- when air hits a jet engine, and you, you can see on like a commercial jet engine, you know, that you fly when you're going on a, a trip somewhere, if you ever have a seat where you can look into the, uh, the engine, you can see there's a bunch of blades spinning around inside that cowl. 
And so the purpose of those is to compress the air that's coming in and make it a really dense charge of air that you then add the fuel to. Kind of like your car engine, when your, your car engine pistons, they compress the air and then you add the fuel and you can burn it and then expand it out and get energy out of it, energy or thrust. So what happens when you start going really fast is that turbine compression doesn't really work very well anymore. And I am not an expert on that, so I don't know well enough the, all of the logistics around that. But what an alternative scheme is, is that you can use these shock waves. So as I said, you have a shock wave that starts to form when you're traveling at high speeds. The shock waves, what they're doing is they're actually compressing the air to really high pressures from what is normally just regular air pressure to some very high pressure. And so you can actually design your engine inlet to create shock waves that go into the engine. And those shock waves process the air, causing it to go to very high pressure. And you can actually eliminate the need for turbine blades that do this compression. Um, and so that vehicle was the first and basically, I think only example of like a functioning ramjet for like um, standard like service use. And it was remarkable sort of thing, but it, what it had to do was as you started going faster and faster, you had to actually have the engine change shape to transition from a standard jet engine to a ramjet engine. And ramming is basically, it's, it's just, it's a fun word used to basically say the air is getting rammed in there, <laughs> passing through these shock waves and is going to very high pressure. So for the pilots flying supersonic jets, the faster you go, I'm assuming they are feeling more pressure, like G-force, I guess. So an important thing to remember about like the G-forces, it's called G-force because um, referring to how many Gs, so how many times standard gravity you're experiencing. Those forces only occur during acceleration. So that's whether oh, okay. you're accelerating, speeding up, or that you're turning, which is also a type of acceleration. You're accelerating, it's just in a different direction. So actually traveling at any high speed itself doesn't have any real effect on the body. You don't, you know, it's, you don't really experience it. It's like when you get in a, a, a car, right? You accelerate, you feel that pushing you into the seat. But as soon as you're up at highway speeds, you don't really feel that anymore, right? You don't feel that backward pressure. Okay, so they're only feeling the pressure when they're... When they're accelerating or when they're turning. Like when you're in a car, right? You're on the highway and all of a sudden you start turning and you kind of get like pulled to the side of your seat a little bit, right? You were saying that that one plane was used just for high altitude reconnaissance. Yeah. Can humans respond that fast piling it or do they try to make it as automated as possible? I don't know the level of automation they had in the SR-71. That was that plane was designed in like the 50s or 60s or something. I think it was probably pretty minimal. The pilots were probably some of the best pilots that have, I imagine probably ever lived to be able to pilot planes like that and handle it. But most of the time when you're flying at these really high speeds, you're actually not turning much. You know, it's, it's kind of like flying in a straight line, very long, large arcs. It's not the sort of thing where you'd be like, having a dog fight, you imagine like the movie Top Gun, right? They're doing all these like fancy dynamics and like, you know, trying to get behind each other to get their missile lock and whatever else. And, uh, but that's, you know, you wouldn't ever be doing that at high supersonic speeds, right? <laughs> that's oh, okay. for sure. Yeah, the whole idea of going so fast and so high is that it was really hard to shoot these planes down. The whole point was that they would go and they would get reconnaissance data. They wouldn't be trying to drop bombs or shoot anything. I actually don't even think these planes had any weapons at all. I, I don't know. I'm not sure on that. But the, the primary mission, as far as I know, was basically to take pictures, hmm. uh, a role that is mostly filled by satellites now. Okay, so are there any hypersonic planes out there? There has been kind of one example of like a piloted hypersonic plane, which is kind of a little bit of a cheat. It was done with a rocket powered. So 
in like the 60s there was something called the x15 which was a cheat is a bad word that's this was an amazing piece of engineering and science that they did um but basically they they were testing like fast can we really fly a plane and put a pilot in it of all things what it was was it was a rocket powered plane so it doesn't take in any air from the atmosphere. It's carrying its, its fuel and oxidizer like a rocket that's, you know, the Apollo missions or the space shuttle or, you know, the SpaceX rockets these days. They're carrying all of that on board and they burn that off. They were able to get up to like, I think almost Mach 7 or something like that. And again, they were flying super, super high, like 100,000 feet altitude sort of thing. And that was mostly just to test, like, what is it like trying to fly this high and this fast? And you know, how do we handle that? But it's not super practical, right? Like a rocket doesn't burn for very long. You know, rockets usually burn out in a matter of a few minutes. Um, and so a, a few minute long flight is not super practical, right? Okay. So what you really want is you want, an, if you want an airplane to go fast, it's got to be air breathing. You want to not have to carry your oxidizer, which is your oxygen, because right. it's in, available in the atmosphere. That's great. We can use that. And it means your, your airplane can be way, way lighter, way, way smaller. And so there haven't been any manned hypersonic planes. There have been, or air breathing hypersonic planes, but there have been a few unmanned ones. And it's only been like the last 15 or so years that this has happened. NASA had a plane called the X-43, and that one hit like Mach 9.5 for about 10 seconds. And so this one, what they did was they brought it up to that speed with a rocket, and then they turned on something called a scramjet, which is like the next level beyond a ramjet. It's called a scramjet. And the important distinction there is that just like the ramjet, it has all these shockwaves that go inside of it, inside the inlet. But they're designed such that the air going through the engine stays supersonic the entire time. Whereas a ramjet, it slowed it down less than supersonic. So it was less than the speed of sound and you added your fuel and did all your stuff. A scramjet tries to keep everything above the speed of sound all the way through the engine, which is a very difficult thing to do and very difficult to add fuel and get it to burn quick enough before it gets shot out the back of your engine. You don't want to just dump all your fuel out the back end before it's burned. You got to get it to burn. That's a really tough thing to do at these really high speeds. So how do they, you're, you keep saying that they get the air to enter at shock waves entering. How do they do that? Yeah. So what you can do is, you know how I described as the plane's traveling through the air, it creates this cone, this this shock wave around it. So what you can do is you can actually set up your inlet to be kind of like that. So the way that the SR-71 did this was you can imagine your inlet of an aircraft engine, like on a standard commercial jet, it's this circle, right? It's a cylinder. And at the center of that circle, what they did was they created this point, this like small cone that stuck out ahead of that, uh, that cylinder. And that leading point created its own little shockwave cone that went around or into the engine, depending upon how the engine was operating. And so by putting a point out up ahead that was hitting the air first, it created this shockwave and it controlled the positioning of that shockwave very precisely. And they were actually able to adjust, I think, the position of that cone. And then the air that would rush through it pass through that shockwave, get bumped up to really high pressure, and then enter the engine. And so you can use physical features of the plane to control where these shockwaves go. And that's, that's a lot of the challenge of designing a supersonic hypersonic jet is you want these shockwaves to go in the right places so the vehicle has the ability to turn, you know, its flaps actually do something, for instance, and that you have the right type of air going into your engines. So is supersonic and hypersonic only relative to sound or is it tied to speed? Like could something in space be considered supersonic if there's no sound? Yeah, no, you're, you're right. Yeah. In space, 
Mach number or speed of sound doesn't really mean anything. There's, there's the vacuum is so low that there really isn't sound. So supersonic and hypersonic only apply within an atmosphere. So technically I'd be faster than the speed of sound in space. Yes. Yes, you would be. Sweet. Yeah. How different are commercial jet engines versus supersonic and hypersonic engines? Yeah. So, um, kind of some of these things we've been talking about is that a standard jet engine has turbine blades inside to compress and then extract heat or extract energy out. Um, there's the compressor, which is the, the first stage, which takes the inlet air, makes it high pressure, and then heats it up and then fuel is added and it, it burns. And then that can be exhausted out of the nozzle. And also some of that is extracted through another turbine to like power things on the vehicle and whatnot. When you go to ramjets and scramjets, you actually start not needing some of those components because what you can do is you can use the shock waves themselves as your replacement for that. And so you can get rid of a lot of the compressor stages at the start of, a, of an engine. And so the difference then is also that there's, as I said, ramjets versus scramjets. So ramjets, they use the shock waves out in front of the engine and through the engine to slow the air down to subsonic speeds. And then fuel is added and burned and shot out the back through a nozzle of you know, a variety of different forms. So ramjets work pretty well up to somewhere in the vicinity of just below Mach 5, like Mach 4 or something, three and a half, four, something like that, where ramjets start not working so well. Part of the reason for that is when you pass air through the shockwaves, as I said before, it increases the pressure, but it also increases the temperature a lot. And if you pass air through a shockwave, it slows it all the way to subsonic. You're passing through a very strong shockwave. So the temperatures and pressures get really high. And then you need to add fuel. And the only way you can get thrust out of the fuel that you added is if your fuel basically brings the temperature of the air and the pressure of the air higher. But what happens is you start to get up to the Mach numbers of three, four, five, the shockwave that is processing the air coming into the ramjet starts making the temperature so high that when you add fuel, it actually doesn't make your gas any hotter. So you actually don't gain anything by adding fuel to it. And all of a sudden your engine no longer produces more thrust. So what will happen is you're going faster and faster with your ramjet. The engine starts producing less and less and less thrust. So what you need to do is you need to figure out a way to make that air that's coming into that engine colder. And what you can do is then change over to what's called a scramjet or a supersonic ramjet that they just add the S on front. And the idea is instead of using really strong shock waves that bring the speed of the air subsonic, you want to keep the air supersonic all the way through the engine. So they have some shock waves that bump up the pressure and temperature, but not too much. And then there's still some headroom for you to put in fuel and get things hotter. And then because you can add energy, now you can exhaust it out and still get thrust. The interesting thing about a scramjet is actually the inside of it is very simple. There's no spinning turbine blades. It's just basically a, a shaped channel that the air goes into. There's some shock waves that form inside. You have some places where you inject some fuel and then it just expands out and becomes a nozzle. It's actually a remarkably simple looking engine, but they're extremely complicated to get right and actually make work. What kind of fuel do they use? Like, is it different fuel for regular commercial engines versus supersonic engines? Yeah, in general, yes. I actually don't know what the plan is for like fuels that hypersonic planes would really run in the, on in the long term. Um, most of the time, the goal is to try to get planes to run on the same fuels because it, it, it's it gets really complicated if you have to have a specialized fuel for every type of engine. You can imagine like if everybody's car required a different type of fuel, you go to the pump station and they have to stock like 10 different fuels or 15 different fuels or something that, that's really difficult logistically. But there are 
more tightly controlled blends. Usually it's, it's similar fuels, but they have more stringent requirements on them because it, there's tighter tolerances in the design of like supersonic engines. But yeah, at the end of the day, they do run on different fuels. For a lot of these experimental vehicles, like the, the experimental hyperson- like scramjets and hypersonic vehicles, they're often running initially on hydrogen um, as a fuel because hydrogen is really easy to get lit and actually have it burn. Part of the challenge is that when you are have a, a supersonic flow through your engine, as I said, you got to put the fuel in, you got to get it to burn. You got to have all that burning happening before it gets exhausted out the back end of the vehicle. So you're not just having all your fuel burn behind your plane instead of inside your engine. So you need things that burn very quickly. And so hydrogen burns very, very quickly and will sustain a flame very easily, but they need to progress towards more practical fuels. Hydrogen is not a very practical fuel to put in an air breathing engine. And so you want to move to things that are like liquid fuels, um, like standard jet fuel, but it's kind of a step-by-step process. And so typically they go from hydrogen to a slightly more complicated a single component fuel, as it's called. So something like ethylene, which is it's only a single type of hydrocarbon to eventually like a blend, which is gasoline is, is a blend and you know, diesel fuel is a blend and jet fuel similarly is also a blend because uh, it's a lot easier to produce those. And Could you yeah. put jet fuel in your car? It wouldn't run very well. So jet fuel actually is pretty similar to diesel fuel, but it certainly wouldn't run in a gasoline engine. You might be able to get it to run. I, I don't know. I actually don't know what would happen if you put it in a diesel engine. Would it just drive really fast no no if anything it wouldn't run very well <laughs> Thanks. um do supersonic jets burn fuel fast like quicker than regular planes yeah they use fuel very very rapidly um because when you're traveling at those speeds there's a lot of air resistance a lot of drag and oh. you got to overcome that drag and so you got to you got to run your engines have to produce a lot of thrust which means a lot of fuel um i think the sr-71 could fly for about 90 minutes total something oh. like that Going away from engines, how much of a delay between the plane and sound would there be? Like how long could you watch a plane fly by before you heard the sound? Or would that all depend on how fast it's actually going? Yeah, so it does, it depends, yeah, a few things. So it depends upon how fast it's going, which that defines actually the angle of that cone. Actually, the faster you're going, the narrower that cone gets, the closer the shock waves end up sitting to your, uh, your vehicle. So you can think that angle coming out that angle comes down from the plane and sweeps along the ground as where it intersects the ground. And so it depends how high the plane is because that'll determine how far behind the plane that that angle hits the ground. So right. that, it, it can vary pretty dramatically. So obviously if the plane is flying really, really low and close to you, you'd hear it a lot sooner. If it's really high and really fast, it has to pass by you quite a ways before you'd hear it. Is there a way to calculate how fast a plane is going by watch it fly by counting how long it takes for the sonic boom to come yeah yeah you um if you were able to estimate how high it was flying then yes you could certainly use that to try to back out um how fast it was flying 100 percent. if you timed out the time until you heard the boom and if you had an estimate about, about how high up it was you could certainly calculate out the Mach number could you get a plane to travel fast enough to make it change colors. Yeah, this is okay. So this is kind of like the questions we talked about last time about Doppler shift and stuff. So we talked about how when they do uh, radar speed detection for your car and things like that, you get a ticket and how that's using the Doppler shift. And so, yes, technically anything that is moving has a Doppler shift of the light that's reflected back or the light that that thing perceives. So let's say if uh, you you can see something because it's reflecting light at you. So if an aircraft is flying through the air and 
you, the light that's coming back at you from it, if it's flying away from you, that light would actually get redshifted. So the wavelength starts to stretch. And if it's flying towards you, you would get blue shifted. So the, the wavelength is getting shorter. Now, the amount of that shift is going to be almost imperceptible. It, 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 it is imperceptible to the human eye for sure. I don't know how fast it actually have to fly for a human eye to be able to pick it up. I could probably do a little math and figure that out to an estimate, but I don't really have a good sense of like the, how well this comes down to actually how well an eye human eye can discern two different colors. You know, it's something green or slightly yellowish green. I don't know how small of a separation that actually is in, in wavelength, but technically everything that is moving is experiencing a shift. We use that for making measurements of velocity all the time but it's usually too small for the human eye to perceive. It's got to be ridiculously fast. The amount of shift is proportional to um, the speed of the object divided by the speed of light. And so you know, we've talked about the speed of sound being 300 meters per second. So speed of light is three times 10 to the eight meters per second. That is a billion kilometers an hour. So that's the thing. I don't know how well the human eye can resolve uh, small shifts in wavelength. With advanced instrumentation that we use, we can resolve extremely small shifts in wavelength. You know, we can measure, for instance, with the instruments we use in, in the lab I use at Stanford, we can measure a shift of one meter per second. So it's 300 million meters per second that light travels. We can resolve one meter per second of that. So that's one in 300 million. But the human eye certainly cannot do that. And so I don't know. I'm reluctant to even give a number of how fast you'd have to go before you could see it. I don't know. I could, if you really want to know, I could calculate an estimate out, but I can't do that on the spot here. I'm not that smart. <laughs> That's okay. And you could add it in like the comments for the podcast or something. Cool. Would there be turbulence created by supersonic engines? Yeah, um, I guess it depends upon how close, but yeah, there certainly would be some effect there. An exaggerated example, but you can kind of think of it like uh, driving by a boat. You know, the boat leaves behind a wake. The, the supersonic jet is also leaving behind a bit of a wake. I don't know how much it would disrupt like a commercial aircraft uh, that you'd feel. You'd certainly hear the boom. That would be pretty terrifying, I imagine, inside of an airplane. You might have some disruption, but uh, it really depends how close you'd be, you were. It's not the sort of thing that I don't, would cause you to like fall out of the sky or something like that. It's probably right. a lot less dramatic also than the like bad turbulence you'd experience on a, a flight that has a lot of weather, let's say. That's an interesting question. I don't know the, the answer that well. Um, how far away could you hear the sonic boom? That all depends upon the size of the vehicle and how fast it's flying. Um, I mean, sonic booms come from a lot of things too. When, when a volcano erupts, it can create a, a sonic boom, for instance, or when a, a meteorite explodes, it can create a sonic boom. Heck, even um, when you crack a whip, that's a sonic boom. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, we, we talk about like breaking the sound barrier as this kind of thing, you know, uh, the tip of a whip can travel faster than the speed of sound. And so we've technically been breaking the sound barrier for a really long time. Um, but yeah, it, for, I do know that, like, for instance, when, and also nuclear explosions create a, a sonic boom as well, you know, th the larger that is, you can, sometimes you can hear them across countries or continents. Oh, interesting. Not, not from a plane, but, but from like bigger events like that. I think that's it. I think that's all the questions I have. Cool. Is all there right. anything else you want to add? 
No, I don't think so. Um, this is fun, though. Made me think about some things that I haven't had a chance to think about for a while. Okay, cool. Well, next Thanksgiving, go uh, shoot a turkey <laughs> into the sky really fast. And there you go. Perfect. Sounds sounds tasty. Actually, no, it doesn't. It doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you're welcome. Well, that's it. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Have a good day.